Welcome back to Fathoms. I mean, Awareness to Action. I mean, the IEA Global Conference <laughs> oh, <yeah>. podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm just on so many podcasts. I, I, can't keep them I just can't keep Hold them all straight. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we are with uh, Mario Sicora and Maria Jose Munita, along with the other crew that you've been hearing throughout um, the past few days. And um, we are all really good friends. I, I would like. Well, yes. Uh, okay. You know, uh, yeah. I feel the same. <laughs> we know each other. We <laughs> familiar with each other's rhythms and acquaintances. Yes. <laughs> idiosyncrasies. Yeah. So, um, so Mario and Maria Jose, you are doing a session here at the Global Conference about clear thinking. You've been like a big proponent of clear thinking for a long time. Why are you still talking about it? Because people aren't listening. <laughs> yes, <laughs> don't get it. <laughs> and we need it even more than when we started talking about it, mm. I think. Mm. What have you learned teaching it over the years? That it's hard. <laughs> it's it hard, hard to yeah. think or hard to teach? Hard to get people to be open to listening to it. I think it, it's hard to get people to see why it matters. Yeah. Mm. And one of the challenges, I'm assuming we're going to focus on clear thinking in the Enneagram community and, mm. you know, our work with the Enneagram rather than globally. Um, the Enneagram is made up of people who see themselves as seekers after truth in some way, this Enneagram community. And the challenge with being a seeker after truth is that uh, we often don't define what we mean by truth. We often don't define how to go about seeking it. And yet we often find, b believe that we found it before we have. Mm -hmm. And what clear thinking, you know, we think of clear thinking as discernment in a way, right? How do we tell what's true from what's not true? What are the tools and techniques to use? And the challenge is, as Maria Jose said, it's hard to learn these tools. And it takes work and practice. Occasionally, like there's this spectrum that comes up of like um, people are like, well, it doesn't have to be true to be useful. Mm. What's how do we better articulate that sort of phraseology? You can use the word. <laughs> that, so, now you're the allowed. E I, I can throw yes, in the e you word. Can use the, the enneagram. Word. No, 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 the other e word. Um, Electronic. No. Uh, so, so there's a couple of pieces to that that question, and one of it is: Does something have to be true to be useful? Mm. Okay, or does it have to be provable or scientific to be useful? And the answer to that is no. There are lots of things that can be useful mm. to some degree or other without necessarily being true, okay? For example, very often we see people who misidentify their Enneagram type, okay? So they go through a few years of work with the Enneagram thinking they're a one when they're really a two. And thinking they were a one was useful for them, right? It's not like, oh, geez, I you know, wasted two years. Now they made some progress. They saw some things about themselves and so forth. Okay, and there are other things as well. Uh, some famous articles about astrology, and you know, it's not true, but it could be useful to people. And yes, I said it. It's not true, but that's okay. <laughs> so, um, um, so, um, so the other side to that is that there are tools for how we discern what is true and what is not. And that's the field of philosophy called epistemology. That's the word. That's the word. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here. <laughs> Definition in the show notes. Clock. Clock, please. <laughs> Clock time. <laughs> Your big word is. Uh, 
Epistemology is simply the branch of philosophy that deals with theory of knowledge and how we know what is true and what is not. And there are different tools for understanding different quote-unquote truths. And it essentially breaks things down into objective facts or objective truths, which are, you know, the earth is a sphere. It's not flat. It's a sphere. Okay? It revolves around the sun, not vice versa. Okay, These are objective truths, facts, whatever we want to call them. But then there are subjective experiences, which are valid, whether they're true for anybody else or not. Okay? I think that people who like strawberry ice cream are a little bit weird. Okay, crazy. I can't understand why. Hey, no. I, no, no offense. See, I told you we weren't really friends. But, um, so, but, but no, we just had our first fight, so we're really <laughs> friends now. <laughs> so, uh, so that's a subjective issue, right? So, whether Lindsay likes strawberry ice cream is it's true for her that it's delicious. Okay, but for me, it's false. And that's a subjective thing. And I think people can have a hard time distinguishing those two things. Mm. For example, we heard a presentation yesterday where somebody was talking about downloads, okay, as a way of receiving information. Well, that's not really an objective way to determine facts or truths, okay, a subjective download, whatever that means, okay. But it doesn't mean that some insight that was quote-unquote downloaded to me cannot be useful in helping me understand myself and mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. So where do you, where do you use um, this framework for clear thinking within the Enneagram? Is it to make sure you're typing well or what, actually how does this, how do you partner these two things? So I think we use it in all of our work. I mm -hmm. think we use it in our lives but also in our work we have this framework where clear thinking is part of it is all the built-in biases that we have, all the cognitive biases. So we try to understand that in order to see how we're using the Enneagram in typing, how we're using the uh, Enneagram in the work with growth, trying to help other people, trying to be more clear about ourselves and the decisions we make. But there's also the layer in clear thinking about personality. So those, uh, our personality doesn't allow us to see clearly. Mm -hmm. And that's another layer. And then we have culture, and then we have misinformation, and then we have... Ignorance. Ignorance. So there are different layers that we use at different times. Uh, when teaching the Enneagram, when using the Enneagram, in showing or pointing out to our clients their flaws in thinking many times, and helping them see and gain perspective through understanding those biases. And I can say as a participant and a graduate of your program that it is, for me, it was for me really, really difficult work. And I think it's because, um, especially in this community, there are a lot of warm wonderful feelings to be had with other approaches. And I tend to be drawn toward that. I think a lot of people are. Um, and yet sometimes moving toward those, those feelings, we are completely ignoring our blind spots or our biases. And so it was really difficult work for me and also really, really necessary work that is, I've only scratched the surface. So can I ask you a question? Lizzie? Sure. So as you entered into like the more critical thinking, the thinking side, do you feel like that detracted from 
how you engage the Enneagram emotionally or do you feel like it heightened it? That's a great question. Um, I think, I don't know that I would use the word heightened, but it certainly didn't detract. I think it clarified. It gave me a way to see what I was feeling with more clarity and then to make a better choice about what I wanted to do about what I was feeling. And that is the whole point right there, right? So our emotions, our feelings push us in a direction. They expose things, either positive things or negative things. And yet if we act without processing those things, and the processing has to be cognitive, right? We have to think about what I'm feeling. We have to think about the, um, the implications. And then we have to think through logical steps and effective remedies for addressing whatever is coming up emotionally. It, it's always fascinating to me, as, as we've done trainings on this over the years, I'll never forget uh, one woman in one of our early trainings who that was uh, ten years ago. Ten years ago, right? And we uh, we were having to do an having them do an exercise around critical thinking, and the woman just sort of wasn't participating. She's just sitting there, like watching butterflies or something in her mind. And um, when I asked her, "Is everything okay?" and she her response was, "Yeah, I'm fine. I just don't think this is important. My clients don't." Um, hire me for, you know, thinking they hire me to learn how to feel better, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, isn't the Enneagram supposed to be about three centers, mm. right? And aligning those centers and using each one appropriately. And imagine somebody saying, ah, don't bother me about the heart stuff, okay? My clients don't hire me mm -hmm. to have feelings, right? And the problem, of course, is that, it, you know, as, as we know, when our capacity for being in contact with our feelings is damaged in some way, we don't think effectively, right? Um, there's a famous case of a guy named Phineas Cage who had a railroad spike go up through his head and out the top, and it damaged a part of his brain, but he still lived, and he was perfectly fine by appearance. He could think, he could count to 10, all these things. But his emotional functioning was screwed up and it just destroyed his life, right? Because he couldn't make decisions because we need our emotions for that. So all of these things are interwoven, right? And if we're ignoring one of them, we're incomplete mm. and the others don't work as well. Mm. Yeah. I've heard it said um, all emotions are valid, but your reactions to them might not be. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I was, so they might, and the reactions to it are not always effective. Mm -hmm. And so when you have this capacity for better discernment, I think that you can understand what's going on better and react to these emotional signals in a more effective way. And effective sounds like, oh, this is business. And I'm talking about personal relationships. I'm talking about everything. When you understand that you're bias towards certain responses, you can decide if you want to go there or not mm -hmm. and choose what's better for that particular situation. But if you don't understand how your brain works on autopilot, you will just be taken there and mm -hmm. won't have the freedom to decide. Mm -hmm. Freedom. Yeah. I love that word. Um, I would say too, as an early student with you all, 
I came with a lot of Enneagram education, but um, up to that point, no one had put clear thinking in the agenda. And it made a really profound difference for my understanding of myself to start with that as the foundation to the scaffolding of the system. Um, I thought I was a thinker before I came to your, I perceived of myself as a (laughs) rational thinker. Mm. And through learning your model and the focus on critical thinking in the beginning, I'm like, oh no, I've, I'm certain, you know, often incorrect, never uncertain, yes. right? <laughs> but to learn that the skill of applying thought intentionally in the same way that in other programs I'm trying to learn how to apply emotions intentionally or learn how to dance with sensation or whatever thing, learning how to effectively use the mental center to seek clarity is its own discipline. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Just spitballing here. That that was such a true statement. It didn't need a response. (laughs) It was a mic drop, but don't because it's expensive. Everyone (laughs) in the improv class is supposed to go, yes! Yes. (laughs) And... I, um, I have a question for you because when I first started working with these ideas, the, that I had trouble understanding biases, first of all, and then I had trouble identifying them as I was experiencing them. So I'm wondering if you can just give maybe one or two examples of the most common biases you see so our listeners can start to kind of understand what to look for. So I think that one of the main things that we need to pay attention to is cognitive dissonance. That's the friction that we feel when two ideas or uh, an idea that I have about myself or the world conflicts with something that I'm seeing or some other feeling or uh, perception that I have. We are not good at holding those conflicting ideas and we try to make one disappear somehow rationalize it away and uh, that's something that affects the work we do with the Enneagram if if we want to see examples kind of uh, related to the Enneagram so if I think that I'm at one and uh, I see somebody points out evidence that I'm not a one I'm a two uh, it's hard to hold because that means that I'm not a good professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means that I'm wrong. That means that everything... So so that tension, I try to make disappear. And it's very easy to do that through saying, well, this person doesn't know what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. Or I'm terrible, so I will not continue doing work with Enneagram anymore. So mm-hmm. it's it's that's one of the things that it's at the base, at the heart of most of the biases that we have so it's not a bias it's just a phenomena that happens in our brain to all of us Mm -hmm. and we need to understand that and the cognitive biases like Mario Jose said is kind of the start I'm sorry the cognitive dissonance is kind of the start of the cognitive biases because it's the biases that make the dissonance go away Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Uh, so if I believe something like Mario Jose said um contradictory information uh, gets ignored, right? That's called cognitive discounting, okay, where I just 
my brain discounts that information. There's also biased assimilation, which means I pull in evidence that supports what I already believe. So if I believe I'm a one, whether I am or not, I'll see the things that um, help me understand, help me believe that I'm a one and not see the things that don't. And one of the things we have to be careful about is assuming that because we can often see confirmation bias or cognitive dissonance in other people, but we don't see it in ourselves, we believe that it's not affecting us, right? But we all do this without realizing it, right? So it's, it's not like people experience cognitive dissonance or fall into cognitive uh, um, or confirmation bias because they're bad or they're poor thinkers or anything like that. It's just what the brain does. So we need tools to, um, to address that, right, to catch ourselves in the act. And this is why some kind of training around clear thinking is important because it gives us the tools to catch ourselves in the act of doing it, just like the Enneagram gives us a tool to see our habitual personality patterns in the act. Can you give us um, any just real-life personal example of one of these for, for yourself? For myself? Yeah. So yeah. I'll, um, when I was young in my Enneagram days, I was doing a, uh, the certification program with Don Riso and Russ Hudson. It was back in the 90s. And I believed I was a self-pres eight. Freak was just born. Yeah. <laughs> really? That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, this is an audio, audio media. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, um, so, but I had the the justification for why I was self pressed and which was uh, it's just you know particular things about always wanting a water bottle around, and you know I don't. It's a long time ago. It was right around when you were first born, apparently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Um, but there were three or four things that I would always cite as why I was self-present. And so we're doing the training, and uh, Don walks over to me, and he says, uh, so Mario, you figure out your subtype yet? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm self-present. And he says, no, you're not. You're social, and walks away. Right? And, uh, you know, of course, that's not what we're supposed to do, but he was Don Riso, so he can, you know. And, uh, <laughs> um, and it just crashed down on me this realization oh my gosh i am and i immediately started to see all these other things that i had not really been paying attention to before right so i could convince myself that i am this when in fact this is right in front of my face but i just couldn't see it so there was both discounting and assimilating happening absolutely for you. yeah and that and it usually does yeah yeah so something that often happens is that people see the results of a particular test saying what their type is and they see that i don't know they're a 5 and they see evidence that they're not a 5 they hear the descriptions and they think that they're a 2 or an 8 but the test says said 5 that's kind of the anchoring bias and you hear you see one thing and then it's hard to move away from that. And that happens to all of us in negotiation, in, in several things that we engage in life. We get kind of anchored by one, the first thing, the first idea, the first impression, the first data point. And it's hard to move away from that. And that is 
related to other fallacies. So if the test, I give it a lot of authority, or if Marvis Sikora told me that I'm a five, then it must be true. Mm. And, uh, well, it might not be true. Mm. So in talking about clear thinking, um, we can look at different models and sort of compare and contrast um, how those models developed and whether clear thinking has, rigorous thinking has been used around that. We know that your model differs in some ways from standard canon. For the listeners today that may be new to the Enneagram or new to understanding there are different schools of thought, could you highlight a few examples of where your work specifically differs? I can. Thank you. Shall, shall I take this? Please do. Okay. <laughs> Will you? <laughs> no, after Come on. you. Spit it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great question, Lee. Thanks. And it... Uh, <laughs> This is the most edited one we're going to have. Oh, my God. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> All right. I'm going to make you work here. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, I, I like that question because it ties together a couple of things here. Um, number one, so I have changed the terminology over the years. And a lot of people think it's just to be more business friendly and that sort of thing. But or to it, be creative. Or, or, yeah, to be creative, <laughs> which, you know, clearly people who – don't you know who know me don't think that's the reason but um the reason behind the name changes is because the existing terminology i found to be great but not great enough mm-hmm. and so as i started using the enneagram in organizations which is a very different environment mm-hmm. from self-help psycho-spiritual environments Okay. And it's different because whereas people in the latter want to believe things, people in the former want to prove you wrong. Okay. So you get a lot more pushback and you get a lot more questions. You have people saying, yeah, but, but what about this? What about that? And so in order to more accurately reflect how I saw these phenomena playing out, I realized that it, it was new names, new terminology was required that captured, that wasn't just different, but captured a broader scope of phenomena, okay? Particularly around the instinctual biases. People think that it's just a one-to-one switch. I can say either self-preservation or preserving, and it means the same thing, but it doesn't. Or I can say social or navigating, and they mean the same thing, but they don't. And so I see people all the time who will use both terms, the traditional and our terms, and as if there's you know no distinction between them but the reality is is that what i the reason i changed the name be, was because the new names reflect a broader uh, understanding of correlated phenomena in this area right so for example rather than sexual or one to one we started realizing that well there's a whole lot more going on here that we see in people of this instinctual bias display tendencies, for example, a need for legacy, for example. And so I started thinking, what is a better term to capture that broader scope? And that's why the new terms came up. I don't go changing terminology just to change terminology. I do it to refine. Now, what happens is, I think Maria Jose uh, mentioned an anchoring bias earlier. 
So people go and they have Enneagram training from other places, and then they come to hear from us, and they struggle to sort of grok the difference, right? To understand that what we're saying is not what they've already heard, mm. okay? Does it make sense that maybe it's like self-preserve, self-preservation fits underneath preserving? Absolutely. And yes. social fits underneath navigating and, and... Depending on how you define social, yes. Right, yeah. and sexual fits under mm-hmm. transmitting, yeah. And that's the problem, is that other people had been describing pieces of what's happening, okay? And they were missing other pieces, I felt. Yeah. So you wanted to hear about the resistance to it. Mm-hmm. And some of it has been that the main teaching had these different names. So for some people, what's closer to truth is what has been taught from the beginning. And for some people, closer to truth is more accurate. Mm. And we are on that (laughs) team that closer to truth is more accurate and not having to be kind of loyal to the original teaching in any way. Uh, but people feel this tension and this cognitive dissonance. Here's Mario coming with these new names, but the already I mean, still alive original teachers said something different. Who do I believe? So I need to get rid of that tension in some way. So oh no, it's because he's business oriented. No, it's because he's just wanting to create a space for him in the community or it's it's hard to assess the information for what it is because there's this tension that they need to get rid of have you had conversations with people who teach it other ways and what's that been like when you encounter that resistance and you're having those conversations where do you end up landing when they're willing to talk it means that they're a bit open And still, a lot of people are very invested in what they're already teaching. So finding value in this means that they need to leave behind some of their teaching. And it's scary. You know, so I think that several people said to me, "Uh, yeah, it's because it's business. So you're good for business. And that's a way that they get regained this balance, their peace of mind. Or... In your model, I'm this, but in my model, I'm that. And they're happy with that. But it's very hard for someone to say, okay, so what am I going to continue using here? Mm-hmm. I remember when I started teaching the Enneagram, uh, it was the Risa Hudson approach. And when I met Mario and started learning from him, I started teaching kind of half and half. And then I thought, you know, this doesn't always work well, and do I need both? And of course, there's this background that it, uh, the other approach provides that I still use, but the terminology and all of that, I just switched to the awareness to action terminology because I thought it was more accurate. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, there is a lot of investment that it's hard to do that. And that investment works in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, there are people making their living off of teaching the Enneagram, mm-hmm. right? And so I've got books or tapes or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, back in the old days, creep tapes. before you were born, tapes, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I think they call them, uh, I don't know what they call them, downloads now? Right? So, streams. Um, <laughs> streams. Um, so I, I've got product out there yeah. using 
certain terminology. And now you're, you know, threatening, you're challenging, you know, what's in my books, what's in my workshops, all that sort of thing. And I've got a problem with that. And I get that, right? It's a very human thing. And, but for me, real intellectual integrity is around saying, hmm, you know, I used to think this and now I think that. And some of the teachers are really good at this. Russ, for example, is, you know, a great example of this where he'll say, yeah, we used to teach it that way. Now we think it this way. And, and he's someone who will make reference to my terminology, right? And say, well, you know, here's how Mario talks about it. And he'll understand the distinctions and that sort of thing. So, um, and that's what a good teacher does is say, oh, yeah, I've learned since whatever. And I'm willing to say that. And now we got to redo all our materials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so bringing, bringing it back to clear thinking, obviously like the redefining of language, uh, obviously some, some obvious pushback. Can you speak to, to those that maybe have a, a more emotional connection to a teacher maybe, and, and don't want to abandon their teacher who they've been with for years or something like that? How does one move move forward with respecting the foundation that they were given, but if they choose, if they think that your language is actually better, how how does someone move through that well? Yeah, I, I, I want to be clear that we're not out to steal other people's students or you know that sort of thing, right? Take take away uh, anybody. But it was just one example. I think that all the cognitive biases apply to several things and not just kind of our language that it's different yeah yeah um but, but on to what you're you know talking about there creeks I, I think it is a, a val- and that's something we all have to face right i mean mm-hmm. you know we grow up believing the things our parents believed right and assuming making the same assumptions and so forth and then we go out into the world and we see things a little bit differently and we start to say oh you know what i don't see this the way my parents did and it doesn't mean i'm disrespecting my parents or not loving them anymore, but I have grown and I am experiencing different circumstances now where this other way of seeing the world makes sense to me and is useful. And the same thing can apply in the Enneagram to a teacher relationship. It's great. I've I've learned from this person and now I'm going to move on with love and respect to that person and learn some more from somebody else. And if I find another teaching uh, more comfortable. There, there's, if a teacher is upset by that, then the teacher really hasn't done their work, have they? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when somebody says, "Hey, I loved your training, but I'm going to go back and teach it the way I always have." All right, okay, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's fine. Uh, it doesn't hurt me. So, uh, you know, I, I think that um, we should all be grown ups and feel comfortable seeing things our own way. Yeah, and, and there's one thing to be able to be willing to discuss an idea and a different thing not to want to have a relationship with someone and still love your teacher and disagree on certain aspects. Thinking that you have to agree on everything with someone in order to be close to them, I think it's a fantasy. You can disagree and you can discuss and then you can really like them. I mean, I come to these conferences only to see the people or mainly. Mm. And it's not only people that I agree with. Mm. It's usually people I respect. 
and we think differently regarding the theory or the application and and that's fine but we can discuss and if i could just say that that's what the uh, that's what the good teachers do right when you look in the enneagram world the teachers like a russ hudson tom condon i'll put in the same category can say yeah i see it differently than you do but i still respect the way you see it and we're just seeing things differently and we can still have a conversation because we understand we see it differently and we respect those perspectives and so we can talk right yeah. How do we disagree better? So like the theme of this conference is unite and ignite. And often we think of kumbaya as uniting, <laughs> but it's unity is. Unity is. What is it? You got a quote for Q that the one? Abram. <laughs> <laughs> Diversity maintained and protected by love. Exactly. Oh, there we wow. go. Yes. Wow. So unity with difference, right? And so how do we disagree better? Um, finding that respect. What is it that we're respecting? And even if we do disagree. Look, you're the theorist here, Mario. But uh, in my case, I respect the intellectual integrity of the person. I respect their attempt to do good work and their willingness to listen and to change their minds. That's a big checkbox for me. Uh, and I also respect that they have practice and it's not just theory and a nice exercise in their heads without engaging into the real world. So when I respect someone, which doesn't mean that I agree with, I can have a conversation and uh, we can talk about what we disagree about without taking it personal. And I think that there's not a lot of that here. Uh, People take it personal and they think that if you disagree with them, you're not, I don't know, valuing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I hear the question, question a little bit differently. Um, there's a great... A, blah, blah, blah. Great. <laughs> great job, Mario. Great job. I'm hunting, I'm hunting dwarf. Wabbits. I'm hunting wabbits. <laughs> um, Staying in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mr. Eloquent, huh? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Eloquent. Salman Rushdie has a great quote. Um, he talks about his training at um, Oxford, and he says, we were taught to debate vigorously, to always respect the individual, but to always disrespect ideas. Okay? Mm -hmm. So if we disagree on something, I have to be gracious and polite and respectful toward you, mm -hmm. but I don't have to spare the feelings of your ideas. Okay? So I can criticize your idea in a way that is you know, respectful to you. And I think anybody who's seeking after truth should seek that, right? Because that's how we learn when somebody says, hey, did you think of this, right? Or have you ever thought of it that way? This is how we grow. And so a big challenge in the Enneagram community has always been that the debates go underground, that they don't actually happen in a respectful, public, structured way, but they come through backbiting and criticism and gossip. Mm. And so Hume said that truth springs from argument amongst friends. 
This is how we get closer to truth. We debate it. We discuss it. We agree to disagree. Okay? And we respect that for the most part. Mm -hmm. But also, there do have to be some rules of engagement, right? There are processes and um, and um, concepts that govern intellectual debate and discussion. Mm -hmm. And we can't dismiss the rules of epistemology when they don't serve us. Right? Mm -hmm. And this is often what happens. So one of the challenges that the IEA has, this is the IEA podcast, right? So I'm, I'm going to say this. One of the challenges that the IEA podcast has is that it's got a great ethics statement, okay? an ethical code. The IEA podcast has? Did I say the podcast? Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, the podcast. Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, they'll stoop to any load. You know, to <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, the IEA has a great set of ethical guidelines what is missing for me is a set of um, guidelines for intellectual rigor in the development of theory and the discussion and debate around theory so that we can all be operating from a sense of objective truth. It's like in what we're seeing in politics today, right? There's this desire to minimize expertise, to dismiss expertise, mm. to question the nature of truth, to move toward relativism. So that whatever I believe is valid just because I believe it, instead of saying, no, wait, there are rules to epistemology. And if we're not following those rules, we're not going to find out what's true. And if we're not agreeing on what's true, or at least how we get there, then we can't function as a society at large or as a community on a smaller scale. Yes. Bingo. That's a mic drop, huh? Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> what, I, what I hear you saying is... Um, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that we have to learn how to feel. I didn't and say that. I know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm, but I'm, since you dropped some quotes, I'm dropping one. Uh, he says that we have to learn to feel enlarged by difference, not separated or threatened. Yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the difference is just as uh, valuable or, or accurate as, as another. Uh, correct. Know? So I, I think when the differences are in the subjective realm, they should be embraced. Mm -hmm. When the differences are in the objective realm, then they should be argued out. Yeah. And one needs to be determined using the rules of epistemology. Um, you know, for example, um, when we talk about the history of the Enneagram, we're talking about something that's objective and factual, and we have to use particular rules for making claims about the history of the Enneagram. And when we ignore those rules, we're just peddling nonsense. Right? Now, is this objective or objective? This is what objectively true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, something you said with, if, if the differences are subjective, they need to be embraced. I think it's, it is to be embraced, but it's also to be acknowledged. Because I think... Well, acknowledged is a better word. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you for Mari. clarifying, Greg. <laughs> wow. Let's just freeze this moment in time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, just it. bathe in this for a second. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think we can just... Uh, bypass and just yeah we'll just like we'll just agree to disagree right. without being like no it's just it's subjective so therefore like I need to be honest with myself that this is subjective and it's not just we're disagreeing about objectivity we're right. disagreeing about subjectivity and yeah. I think that 
in, it, that's a tricky place that I, I find yeah. myself in mm-hmm. sometimes. And what's also tricky is that people don't always know how to classify different things. Mm-hmm. And they think that something is subjective when it's part of the objective realm. And they just dismiss information or other points of view saying, this is my experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As if it were subjective yeah. when it isn't. Yeah. Another example of this is, or another element of this, is that we have to be clear on our claims and our concepts and make sure that we're speaking the same language and understanding what the other person is claiming, right? So a model has to be internally consistent, meaning not contradict itself, and externally consistent, meaning it describes repeatedly the thing it claims to be describing. We can have different models of the Enneagram in a way, right? So with the subtypes, for example, when I speak to uh, Tom Condon, who's you know a great Enneagram teacher and a friend of mine, we see the subtypes differently, okay? And so he'll see somebody, for example, as a social one, whereas I see them as a transmitting one, okay? But according to his model, his set of qualifications or characteristics, what he's describing is consistent with what he calls a social one. And it's consistent with what I call a transmitting one. Okay, So we're both correct based on our model. And so whenever we're discussing these things, we have to be clear. Well, what do you mean by that? Right? Before we can say, you know, you're a nine, you're not a nine, we have to say, what is a nine? And here's what I mean by what a nine is. And then we can determine whether a person is a nine or not. Mm-hmm. So everyone's right. <laughs> sure. Objectively, yes. yes. <laughs> MJ, do you have anything to add? Just to try to be compassionate towards what it means to do this work. And uh, when you are debating ideas and you're invested, as I said earlier, there's this tension like, what does it mean to be wrong? And when I'm wrong, then does it mean that I'm that I don't don't know what I'm talking about, mm. and what are what are other people going to think because I changed my mind? And and I think that valuing and honoring the intellectual integrity to that provides the ability to change your mind is something that we mm. don't nurture in general culturally. You're kind of weaker when you change your mind. You're not stronger. And I think that's something that uh, needs to be nurtured um, because it makes it harder mm. to do this work that we're talking about. And coming back kind of full circle to like what we were talking about of how a lot in the Enneagram community is very emotional based, very heart based. And if we're actually serious about that, there's not much more uncomfortable than being wrong, than 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 being confronted with the ways in which your perception of reality isn't exactly how reality is working. And if you want to be truly emotionally brave, then you need to be able to embrace that discomfort and that tension of being wrong or of not seeing clearly or all all the different ways that mentally we can be led astray through our biases. Um, So do you want to be emotionally brave and actually do the work? Then we have to learn critical thinking. Mm. But even before that, or when you're teaching something that's really challenging, but when you're a student or when you're exposed to these things, 
there is an emotional kind of warmth that you feel when you hear certain ideas. And you kind of like it and you want to believe. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when we need to kind of wake up and say, okay, I really like this. I would love it to be true. That's scary. That's a signal that you need to pay attention to. Is it really true? I'll, I don't know, I'll investigate what evidence there is that contradicts it. I'll see, I'll seek for other points of view because that's the trap. We want to believe certain things. They feel good. Can you give an example of something that you experienced? It's not that I experienced, I've observed and I experienced, but when you make people feel special because of something, they will want to believe it's true. And if we're talking about the Enneagram being the secret thing that only we are aware of and we let, have to let the world know about it, wow, I would love to believe that. Mm. Is it really true? Am I able to see that, those claims clearly? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard. Mm. That kind of reminds me of something, because you're appealing to, I would say, a pretty fundamental part of what it means to be human, uh, which reminds me of this quote from Gabor Mate, who says that um, people tend to have two needs, connection and uh, a need for connection and authenticity. And anytime connection gets threatened, authenticity will be trumped. You'll forget about that because I would rather be connected to you and lose authenticity. So we're humans are tribal creatures, okay? mm-hmm. and we we need the tribe to survive. We need to we need a group. We need support, connection. And when we start to change our views, when we start to question the accepted wisdom of things, we feel a potential death. Because for our ancestors, you know, disagreeing with the tribe could lead to ostracism, which could lead to death. Mm. And so we have all these reactions that come up whenever our sense of connection are threatened, which is why so few people change their religion or change their political views or change whatever it is. But what every wisdom tradition tells us is that we do not see the world clearly, mm. and yet we think we do. And so if you think you see the world clearly, that means you don't, right? (laughs) And um, because we have to start from, I don't see the world clearly. I need tools to help me do it better. I'll never be perfect. I will always be fooled about something. I will always be wrong about something. My goal is to minimize the number or reduce the number of times that happens. And so every time what a good thinker does is that every time they find themselves to have been wrong about something, they get excited because now I've learned something and I've gotten closer to truth. And what a poor thinker does is thinks, I already know the truth and I'm not going to question it. And if you disagree with me, I'm going to demonize or deny or exclude you in -hmm. some way. I sent you this on Instagram recently. Um, It's a meme And it says, I have attempted science. These aliens are talking. (laughs) I have attempted science. And the teacher alien says, please explain. And it's like one of those tri-fold boards that you see at like Uh science fairs, right? And the student says, I formed an idea and then discovered I was wrong. 
And the teacher says, there are numerous diagrams. And the student says, I was wrong in numerous ways. (laughs) (laughs) And then the student says, I produced a detailed tribute to my wrongness. And the teacher says, that is science. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There it is. There it is. A detailed tribute to your wrongness. Yeah. Well, and and the funny thing is that when you don't understand how science really works, you think that you're researching things that uh, in a way that you look for evidence that confirms your Mm -hmm. hypothesis. And that's not science. Right. Mm. And that was pivotal for me when I started to integrate your teaching into my own coaching was instead of trying to prove that a client was a certain type in our work together, we began to try to disprove our theories. And that takes longer sometimes. Um, But I feel like it's a truer process. And it takes you to much more interesting places. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so I feel like we've been doing this the entire episode, but the the question that we have mostly been ending these episodes on is what is the one plea to the Enneagram community? If the theme of this conference is unite and ignite, what's the one plea to the Enneagram community that would help us do that? When we can't be good critical thinkers and challenge ourselves or challenge others in a respectful way. We create a false unity. We create a false peace. Mm. And under the surface, there is disruption and disdain and contempt for others. It's kind of that, you know, mean green meme thing that Ken Wilber talks about, where we feel like we should all get along. So we just ignore the shadows and the shadows always come back to haunt us. So the path to true unity is through questioning and challenging and respecting and growing that way instead of stunting investigation and innovation and growth and development Mm -hmm. by pretending that we all have to agree and get along. Father Mario be preaching. (laughs) (laughs) I would add that we're not that aware of how many people are leaving because we're not critical mm. thinkers. And mm. so we feel this unity but amongst the people who stay. Yeah. But a lot of people yeah. are leaving. Oof. And yeah. so what is unity he- here? It's like this diversity, does it include people who think that we're not rigorous enough, that we're not, we're not promoting excellence enough? So I would say that it will be a unity of more people that will ignite better outcomes if we are better thinkers. That's pretty damn good, too. Wow, right? (laughs) Pass the plates, (laughs) strike up the band. I was going to say, we're talking about religion, really. In a word, unity isn't groupthink. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank for, you. Yeah, this wonderful conversation. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Yeah.